Hi readers, Jenna here. Wanted to let you know that we are going to be discussing some difficult topics today, like abuse and self-harm, so please take care when listening. He's only going to make it worse. There's there's no point to any of it, is basically the end. And it's it's There's really not any hope in it, but you still walk away from the book going, something feels resolved. Yes, <laughs> that is the feeling. <laughs> Welcome to Red Wine Reads, a community of book lovers talking about our favorite and not-so-favorite books while pouring a glass or two of wine. I'm your host, Jenna Miller, and with me today is Ella Kopakin as we discuss the book Kindred by Octavia E. Butler. We are still in the month of genre swaps, so that means that this book was chosen by Abby and given to us to read, and I'm not gonna lie, I had varying expectations coming into this book. It was one of those that I've always seen on school lists, and so I thought that it was going to read like a school textbook, but boy was I wrong. This conversation was so interesting. Ella and I got into a lot of different topics. We could have gotten into a lot more, but this book really surprised us in a lot of ways and also not surprised us in a lot of ways, but I think Octavia E. Butler is such an interesting author and she's someone that just needs to be talked about more. And so I'm so happy that we got the chance to read her book, to really dissect it and really get into it. So I'm so excited for this episode, for you all to listen to it. And it's gonna be a fun one. So let's just get right into it. You can tell us your opinions, your hot takes on our Instagram and TikTok at rwreadspodcast. That's at R-W-R-E-A-D-S-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. So without further ado, let's pull some corks and get reading. Like I said, this week we read Kindred by Octavia E. Butler. This one I'm excited about. Oh yeah. Thanks in advance, Abby. You get me. You get my book preferences. <laughs> yes, she does. So let's uh, let's dive right in. So Ella, welcome back to another episode of Red Wine Reads. Thank you. I realize it's been a while. We haven't recorded in a hot minute, you and I. I know. I think we are one behind. <laughs> <laughs> Classic us. <laughs> Classic. Um, so anyways. <laughs> and now before we get started, uh, what are we drinking tonight? <laughs> Uh, nothing. I forgot that we had to have a beverage, and so I am flying totally sober, which I feel is appropriate for this episode. Okay, yeah, I just have a small little glass of champagne uh, from a bottle that we had opened. Still have it in the fridge, so I just poured myself a little glass. Oh my god, fun! Yes! Uh, so this week, we had the pleasure of reading Kindred by Octavia E. Butler. Boy, did we. I am so freaking pumped to talk about this book. Me too. And I have lots of quick facts. So let's um, let's get into the quick, not so quick facts. Let's do it. Okay. So this book was published in 1979. It has received a 4.3 out of 5 on Goodreads. People fucking love this book. It was made into a 2022 Hulu TV series, which I have not had the chance to watch. It. I will dive in to that. Yeah, it's... There's a lot to say there. Yeah. Great. I can't wait. We'll get into it. Octavia herself kind of classifies this book as a grim fantasy, so not really quite science science fiction, which kind of most people describe it as, because it kind of takes place in like the modern world and then she's thrown back in history. It's There's a whole lot to get into there. She actually received around 15 rejections of this manuscript before it was actually published. 
uh, because people just didn't know how to classify it. People didn't know what to do with it in 1979. So people, you know, at first just rejected it. And then now it has sold over 500 copies. <laughs> Five, Five, sorry, 500. <laughs> so close. Uh, and now it has sold over 500,000 copies. <laughs> okay, that makes a little more sense. <laughs> so there you go. You know, she tries to dive deep, and we'll we'll get more into this, um, into the the idea of emotional understanding versus factual understanding. So a lot of this is mm-hmm. taking place in that emotional state rather than like a factual retelling of history. And so there are a lot of true points in that, which actually uh, made this one of the most painful books for her to write because it was so closely related to the story of her mother and her grandmother. Um, her mother was a maid. And she describes, you know, watching her mother being working and these people acting like per- the person's house that she was cleaning. They just acted like she wasn't there and just like talked about her like as she was not a person. And then her grandmother, her grandmother's own journey as well. And so she was trying to write Kindred as this retelling of like making the women this true heroine of this story that not a lot of books were doing was putting this black woman as a heroine of a story. So Octavia, uh, she was born in Pasadena, California. So she was extremely shy as a child, like extremely shy. Uh, But she found an outlet in the library where she read a ton of fantasy and then she started writing because she watched this one movie and was like, this is terrible. I can do a much better job. (laughs) So she wrote her own version. So she began writing science fiction as a teenager. Um, And then she went to college, went to this program for writing that later we'll get into, kind of was a big influence on a lot of these up and coming Afrofuturism writers, which uh, Octavia E. Butler was kind of named the mother of Afrofuturism. But uh, she kind of described her writing as religion and uh, her writing took her above and beyond and won her the Hugo and Nebula Awards, which are top awards for fantasy novels and and she was taken from us way too soon but that is Octavia she had like several illnesses that just never were properly diagnosed right that was the deal and then she yeah so I really just found out about who Octavia Butler was when the tv show was coming out because honestly until we started this podcast I was not that deep into sci-fi reading and um there's an amazing issue of New York Magazine and Vulture that did several different articles on her and one in particular that's like a biographical piece that just sort of traces through her whole life and her struggles with fitting in. She's just truly so fascinating as a human being. Like, I think that's why I ended up watching the show and I was dying to read this book. So then when Abby assigned it to me, I was like, yes! (laughs) So, yeah. I I think my links to books that usually end up being my favorite books start with authors that I find fascinating. And so she was such a prime example of that because I just found her story so interesting that I just wanted to read everything that she had written after that. Yes, yeah. I also found out a lot about Octavia and her life and her influence on this uh, genre through this. NPR has a podcast uh, called Throughline. And they did a full episode on her in 2021 where they invited on these uh, writers like Nettie Okorafor, who actually I can save this for the pairings because that's one of my... Oh, okay. Just kidding. Yeah, we don't have to get into it now. It's too early. It's too early. 
too early. Yeah, I'll I'll talk more about the show later. But the last thing I'll say is that in that in the same vein of of what Vulture did about Octavia E. Butler, Vulture usually has like specialized people come in and do their reviews depending on what the show is. And uh, the woman who reviewed all eight episodes of the Kindred TV show, Ile Ife Okanta, I want to say her last name is. Yeah, Okanta. She's also a professor in addition to being a TV critic. And she just wrote these phenomenal reviews of the show and really gives you sort of like an in-depth kind of academic analysis alongside of the show and it sort of bleeds into the book too. And uh, I just feel like it's a really good sort of, even if you don't want to watch the whole show, it's a really interesting analysis of the two side by side. And she's a really great writer and a really great journalist. And it's a super cool breakdown. And yeah, I just recommend reading the short little eight episode synopses that she wrote too. Ooh, okay. We got a lot we got a lot of uh, extracurriculars for you on this one. Like as you can tell, we are just by chomping out the bit to like get talking about everything. So we'll start with our I I have done a summary in 12 points. Cool, do it. So 1976, our main character, Dana, turns 26, moves into a new L.A. home with Kevin, her husband, and while unpacking, she suddenly finds herself disoriented, lightheaded, and then boom, she's out and suddenly waking up on the side of this uh, lake and this young boy is drowning. And so she saves him, learns his name is Rufus, and then sees that the dad of Rufus is pointing a gun at her, and suddenly she's back in present time, trying to explain to her husband why she just vanished. (laughs) Yeah, why she evaporated. And then uh, later that same day in 1976, Dana time travels back to where this boy Rufus is. He is setting his house on fire, (laughs) but doesn't quite. Uh, She helps him put it out. And then she learns that she's in antebellum Maryland. Rufus finds out that he is subconsciously calling her whenever he is in danger. And so Dana also learns that she can travel back home to 1976 when when she believes that her life is in danger. Now Rufus falls out of a tree. Dana comes back. uh, And this time she brings Kevin with her because Kevin was touching her when she travels back in time. So Kevin, her husband, is coming back. And now they must fit into their roles of this period. So Dana must pretend that she is enslaved to Kevin, the white owner. And they have to kind of play this role out in Antebellum, Maryland. So uh, when Dana gets caught teaching two of the slaves, Nigel and Carrie, to read, the owner, Tom Whalen, whips her to the point that she um, fears for her life. So again, she is now transferred back into 1976, but she did not bring Kevin with her. So eight days pass for her, and then she comes back and realizes Kevin has been there for five years. So Kevin had left the plan- plantation. Yeah, Kevin leaves Maryland and then, I don't remember, he travels basically to... He travels north. The north, yeah. Yeah, and then f- comes back once he hears that that Dana is back. And then you find out that Alice um, is Rufus's, you know, love interest and... She's enslaved. Yes. Rufus um, chased her and her husband out and ended up, they both got caught. Alice was almost chewed to death by a dog, and her husband had his ears cut off and was sold to another slave owner. And Rufus tried to rape her. Yes. 
And so uh, pretty much Rufus gets jealous of Dana and Kevin's relationship. And really, Rufus doesn't want to be romantically involved with Dana, but it's this like weird mother, son, sister, brother type relationship. And he's getting jealous that Kevin gets to travel back with her um, and that Dana gets to go back. And so he's like, no, you're not going to go back. He points a gun at her. And then her and Kevin come back to 1976. Because Kevin traveled back down south to rescue her. Yes, he came back to the plantation. (laughs) It's a lot to keep track of. It's a lot. Also important, important to note that Dana has discovered that she keeps being called back to Rufus because eventually Rufus will in fact rape Alice and will create a child that is distantly related to Dana. So Dana can't exist in her time period without having Rufus stay alive in his. So that adds a whole other layer to their complicated dynamic because she has to be allies with him even though she despises him. Exactly. And so eventually, Alice gives birth to Hagar, who is Dana's great-grandmother. So once that happens, Dana's like, okay, myself being born is saved. So like Hagar is born, and whatever happens after this, like I know that I have saved myself. So with that, she finds that Rufus is becoming more controlling, sadistic, vengeful, and she tries to make him kinder and tries to give him this perspective that nobody else can give him. And yet he just keeps falling into the ways of the time. And so uh, he tries to, well, I guess there's this part with Sam James is another enslaved person. And this is kind of the part that sends Dana over the edge. So Sam James is like flirting with Dana, very harmless. And then uh, Rufus catches him doing that. And so he ends up selling Sam and tearing him away from his own family And so that night, Dana slits her wrist so that she becomes close to death and is back in uh, 1976 with Kevin again. So then two weeks later, Rufus calls Dana one more time. So she travels back in time one one last time and learns that Alice, the mother of Hagar and the woman that Rufus has raped, has killed herself after Rufus made her believe that he had sold their children to punish her for acting out. And then Rufus asks Dana to stay with him and to sleep with him, and then he tries to rape her. And then when he does that, she stabs him, kills him, and sending her back into the present. However, when she tries to go back to the present, Rufus's hand was clutching her arm. So when she arrives, she is without a left arm. While her arm is in the wall. (laughs) Yes, her arm is physically in the wall. (laughs) I guess that's how he got amputated. Uh, (laughs) Ow. (laughs) So uh, when she recovers, she and Kevin go to Maryland to try to search for any record of this plantation. And they find that Nigel, who was enslaved, had burned the house down to cover up this murder. And this enslaved people were sold to other people. And Alice's children were presumably were freed and went up to uh, live with Margaret Whalen's family in Baltimore. Because we forgot to say, before killing Rufus, Dana convinces Rufus out of his guilt over Alice killing herself to free their children that he hadn't killed in the first place. And so luckily that happens and Dana survives. There's just so much in this book. <laughs> there's, there's like trying to break this down is going to be... A task. So let's do it. <laughs> let's try. <laughs> so I will say 
I fully went into this thinking it was going to read like I was back in AP English or back in college and it, this was like a required reading because I, I know that in some classes this was taught and so like that's what I was expecting and um, by God I was so wrong. I flew through this book. I got it on audio because I wanted to take it with me grocery shopping and I like could not put it down. And I like could have sworn this book was written in like early 2000s because the way it was written was so, I was just fully expecting it to be so dense and it was, but it was written in such a way it read so much like a fiction novel that I would pick up because I thought it sounded good. And so like I was completely taken aback because that was not what I was expecting that going into this book. Also, I mean, what you said at the top really rings true. Yes, she was a sci-fi author, and yes, time travel is a component in this book, but it's so much more about the emotions. In the past, when we read sci-fi on this show, I find sci-fi so hard because it's so much about the building of the world, the rules of the world. It, it just becomes very sort of rigid, whereas because she's so rooted in her character's emotion. She builds a world and she builds rules for the time travel, but you're not really concerned with it. You're more, you're so much more invested in what's happening in their immediate thoughts. It's sort of that feeling of not seeing a trailer for a really good movie. And then you go and you, you don't even know what to expect. And you walk out of it thinking that it's life changing. That's sort of the sensation that I got reading this book. And I mean, it's been a really long time since I picked up a book and read it in less than a week. And this was one of those books where I was just like, I want every excuse to read this. I couldn't put it down because she she's so just accessible and her writing is so beautiful. Yeah, it's um, I wrote the sci-fi aspect felt cool, but not overdone. It felt unique and it, it was a part that I really enjoyed this is what we should have been reading in school. <laughs> well, I think what you're touching on is, listen, it's no secret that America is really bad at teaching its kids and particularly bad at teaching American history to its kids. Each state is responsible for what goes into its textbooks. So when you pick up a textbook in school, you're reading whatever the state government wants you to read and you're getting a version of slavery and massacre and war and disease that has been essentially glazed over and, you know, fixed into a very perfect box. And you often don't get individual emotional stories when you do, if they're the case of Sojourner Truth or Frederick Douglass, those kinds of people, they're fascinating, but they're still seen as icons, right? They're not accessible in any way. You read their speeches or you watch a documentary about them in class, but you don't really get to know them as people so much. And I think that because of that, you walk away from AP US history or government going, yeah, those people were really interesting and I'm so glad that I know about them, but it's not information that you're internalizing deeply. You're internalizing it, hopefully, <laughs> to some extent, but it's not the same as having a dialogue. And what she does here is say, no, we need to have a dialogue about what the actual visceral experience was of every single part of American slavery and that time in the South and that time in America, period. 
And you're learning about the white slave owner as much as you're learning about the slave, as much as you're learning about the slave's child. You're, you're learning about every single person involved and how that hierarchy was constructed and what that hierarchy did to people. Yes, and you're getting like her and Kevin trying to come back to the 1970s and be like, how do we go about our normal life and even then, it's not it's not perfect. It's not perfect today. It's just like you get this interesting mindset of this woman who is more modern and is more like relatable to the reader and seeing it through her eyes of going back into this time. So I think that's what made it so accessible. It was a character like us trying to understand this time that is in insanely complicated you learn at the end you can't change him you think this is a story where rufus is gonna change oh see i didn't think of it as being rufus was gonna change here when i started reading the book i thought this is someone watching how white supremacy is ingrained into a child who then becomes someone who perpetuates that supremacy and watching how despite whatever emotional connection you make to that person, ultimately societal standards win out. And it uses the case of one individual plantation to show what perpetuated throughout all of America and how things are passed down and how things are reinforced. And I I was going to say something before. Oh, well, I just, I, I also think it's really fascinating reading this book now because we look at 1976 when this book takes place is history now too. So it's history on history. And I remember reading that there, there was an interview with Octavia Butler describing what gave her the initial idea for this book. And the initial idea was that she was talking to, uh, I think at her college, this black activist who was saying that in order for he wished that he could essentially kill off everyone who had perpetuated the internalized racism of America. But in order to do that, he would have to start with his own parents. And she realized that there was a real division, a historical division, between people's understanding of how people had to survive and what they were realistically able to do as rebellion in their own times. Exactly. You know, there was a there was a quote that I highlighted that said it was Dana and Kevin talking and they were watching these slave children just playing. And she goes, I closed my eyes and saw the children playing their game. The ease seemed so frightening. I said, now I see why. And Kevin goes, what? The ease. Us, the children. I never realized how easily people could be trained to accept slavery. And so it's that this is all they know. And this is what they're growing up with. And how are you supposed to change an entire nation. Yes, you may have more freedoms up north, but the the journey to get there may end with you almost dying or dying or getting captured and and beaten and sold. I just think it was so powerful in the way that I finished the book and I felt that feeling of Kevin and Dana as they go back to the plantation and realizing like nobody got their ending that you like want you want this storybook ending for like the whole place to go up in flames and everybody to be free but that's not how it was and so you're left feeling like fuck (laughs) that is like the tell of a good author that I'm still feeling the same feeling that I left this book with yeah well she also 
I mean, this is a book that I can say more than I think maybe any book I've read. It's all gray area. She has compassion for Rufus, even though he has been trained to be a white supremacist slave owner. She it has has disagreements with Alice and and there's hierarchy within the slaves themselves. Dana doesn't do a lot of hard labor. And when she does, she often gets out of it somehow. And that's not okay to a lot of the slaves who don't understand her predicament because they don't know what 1976 is. They have no idea what Dana's reality is. There is no way to tie it up with a bow. And like you're saying, I kept thinking of that quote from Ocean's Eleven, weirdly enough, where they're talking about robbing the casinos and Elliot Gould's character goes, that being said, once you have the money and you get out, you're still in the middle of the fucking desert. That's what the South and that's what all of America was. Yeah, you might you might be a slave able to run away. Best case scenario, you get up north. What happens then? People still are racist. People still are horrible. There's always the chance that you're going to be captured again. There wasn't a way out for anybody. Whether you were a perpetuator, a bystander, or a victim, no one was okay. And because of that, we are where we are today in this country. Yes. And in this interview that I had mentioned at the beginning, they take sound bites from Octavia Butler's like interviews. And she had gone on to explain, I don't want good and bad characters. I don't want people to like read my books and be like, this is a good character. This is a bad character. This is a good circumstance. This is a bad circumstance. Like, cause nothing ever is. <laughs> it's like it, everything is a gray area. And I actually highlighted something that also struck that chord. This is in like the last part. This is kind of the last time that Dana comes back to Rufus and is in is seeing him as more violent and more vicious as he has ever been. And she's kind of talking about how the slaves are reacting to him. And she goes, strangely, they seem to like him, hold him in contempt and fear him all at the same time. This confused me because I felt just about the same mixture of mixture of emotions for him myself. I had thought my feelings were complicated because he and I had such a strange relationship, but then slavery of any kind fostered strange relationships. Only the overseer drew simple, unconflicting emotions of hatred and fear when he appeared briefly, but then it was par- it was part of the overseer's job to be hated and feared while the master kept his hands clean. Yeah. Well, part of um one of those reviews that I was talking about earlier, I can't remember what the theory is exactly called, but that writer talks about the idea of role theory, I think it's called, and the idea that everyone has a role to play within society, whether or not they're doing it consciously. And because of that, you have your own limitations, but everyone's stuck in the same game, in the same board game. So you have to find a way to make peace with it. And because of that, there's this sort of distorted comfortability in in total inhumanity. Yeah, I would like to touch on the ending of this book because I, I read this quote from her, from Octavia, because they were talking about the amputation of her arm. Because when I read the ending, I was late to work because I was like, I need to finish. <laughs> so I was like at least 20 minutes late. But she was talking about the amputation of the... of Dana's arm because it's kind of jarring. She goes, I couldn't really let her come all the way back. I couldn't let her return to what she was. I couldn't let her come back whole. Antebellum slavery didn't leave people quite whole. Mm. How could she ever come back the same after seeing what she came, what she saw, after experiencing what she felt, or beaten close to death multiple times? How can you ever come back the same way? 
I mean, that's so interesting because I was I was really wondering what that was meant to signify. And that makes so much sense. I mean, there are just layers on layers in this book that it's impossible to cover everything. But what I thought you were going to say when you wanted to talk about the end, Alice dying and then Dana's final confrontation with Rufus, I just found to be, I mean, just so, it was just so harrowing. I just, I couldn't. I couldn't even, I, I don't even think I processed the actual end of the book with the arm and all that for a while because I was just so stunned by it. And also it happened so suddenly, which because because we were looking from Dana's perspective, so she just gets called back after a couple of weeks and all of a sudden this is what's happening. And I think it's such a metaphor for just the inevitability that there is no such thing as safety the fact that she kept being dragged into the world just as she was getting comfortable in her own life again and then to have that be the sort of final thing of like it's almost like Rufus was a spoiled child with a toy that he finally broke and when he did he didn't want to take accountability for it and I only say that in those terms because ultimately looking at it from Dana's perspective it is all so absurd you know the realities of slavery were absurd they're made up rules that then became life or death that these people were randomly given the ability to have to have control because they took people from another country and abused them and malnourished them and and beat them into submission and then so to have Rufus die in this such a weak you know selfish moment of just what was it all for and this and this woman who had had such a horrible life anyway finally getting joy out of kids and having that ripped from her because of his own inability to just have any humanity jesus fucking christ well and you gotta imagine from dana's point of view like you were saying she is getting glimpses Like, she is coming in for a few months at a time. She's coming in for a few hours at a time. When she leaves, she doesn't see the progression of it. And as a reader, you don't see the progression of it. So then you're thrown in, and all of a sudden, Alice is hanging there. And so you're with Dana of trying to figure out and trying to, like, unfurl everything. And by the time you do that, you're like, God, he's irredeemable. Because at first, like... I don't know how she's going to end this cycle of keep getting called back. Like, maybe it's going to be, like, you know, at his deathbed or whatever. But the fact that she has to kind of take it into her own hands and be like, my my generational line has been saved, but now Alice is dead, and he's only going to make it worse. There's there's no point to any of it is basically the end. And it's, it's There's really not any hope in it. But you still walk away from the book going, something feels resolved. Yes, (laughs) that is the feeling. (laughs) I don't even know what it is that's resolved because it's like you're saying, she's she's not whole anymore. She doesn't have an arm and yet she is safe. And and what does that mean? That that she has seen all of this and internalized all of this and yet now she gets to live her life maybe maybe that's it maybe it's the beauty of of getting to live the rest of her life but i just yeah i don't know but wow honestly top top five book that we read on this show together 100 100 
we could stay here for hours and just keep going on long tangents, but we should probably wrap it up. So final ratings. Final ratings. I wonder what we're going to give it. <laughs> well, I'll go first. Five out of five. <laughs> yes, I, like I said, I was fully prepared this to be like, I, you know, was going to struggle to make it through. And yet I finished this in probably three days. (laughs) So from the first time that Dana gets sucked back in time, which is within probably the first four four pages, I was absolutely hooked. Couldn't put it down. And I think it ended with this resolution that is weirdly sufficient, that you feel like you don't need anything else, but it's such like a sad resolution and that's like sad is not even the right word like it's it's this deep pain and this deep like confusion and wrestling and like hurt and yet you're still coming out of out of this book of with like a sliver of hope and I don't know how she did it but she did (laughs) so five out of five easy um I'm also gonna give it a five out of five I think that just from a technical standpoint, her writing and her ability to address emotion is second to none. But from a story standpoint itself, I think that there is there is the history that is taught in school and then there is the history that was experienced by actual people. And this is probably one of the closest ways to get to the actual experiences of individuals who lived through this time. And I think that that small sliver of hope that comes at the end of the book It all goes back to the kids, you know, that we talked about earlier. Those children were freed and that was all that she could do. And because those children were freed, Dana got to be a person and got to live her life and got to love the man that she loved. And it came from such horror. And I think that that is a really good larger metaphor for just the country in general. We were created out of a horror show. We continue to live in a lot of atrocity and I don't know that this country will ever recover from being founded on white supremacy but look at individual stories and do what you can to learn them to spread them to allow more people to tell their stories and I just think that this is a prime example of um, some of the best versions of that and I think that she it, it's just really unfortunate that we didn't get to hear any more from Octavia Spen- Spencer, excuse me, that's the actress, from Octavia Butler, that she died so soon. And, and I'm just really, really happy that she's finally more well-known and that hopefully more adaptations are coming of her work. And uh, yeah, big, big ups to Octavia. <laughs> yes, that's a good way to say it. Well, let's get into our pairings. I'm so interested uh, to see where we go with this. So this is where we get to pick TV shows, movies, and other books, and also a drink that might parallel today's book. So let's start off with our drinks. I did Moonshine, because I feel like that's like a liquor of the time, and I'm going to do specifically, there's a Richmond brand Moonshine called Belle Isle Moonshine, and they do a lot of different flavors, and so uh, it's a little bit more bougie Moonshine, but I'm still doing Moonshine. I love it. I wrote down, why would I drink? I'm too stressed out (laughs) for the drink. That's even better. (laughs) I really tried to come up with an alcohol here and I was like, I can't. Maybe like bad beer. Yeah, that was, I couldn't, I just couldn't think. Every time I like went to go do a drink pairing here, I was like, it feels too trivial. 
Well, let's get into our TV shows. What'd you do? I actually am not going to recommend Kindred the TV show uh, other than the reviews of it because to be quite honest with you, there's quite a lot of separation between the TV show and the book. It takes a lot of liberties and I didn't find it to be as good. I think that there are a couple of really shining moments and I think that the woman who plays Dana is great, but it just, it's not, it didn't get great reviews and I think that there's a reason for it not getting awesome reviews. I just think that they missed the mark on some things. And I, uh, yeah, I don't know. So I chose two TV shows. One is The Good Lord Bird, which is based on the Colson Whitehead novel. And it's from the perspective of this young free black boy in the 1850s. And he becomes friends with John Brown, who if you don't know who John Brown is, John Brown is basically a guy who I think most people learn about in history class, but he was a white man, but he was a famous abolitionist. And he basically staged this crusade at Harper's Ferry. Then basically he just wanted to kill a bunch of people who were pro-slavery. And uh, it didn't work out great for him. He ended up being hanged. But Ethan Hawke plays John Brown in the adaptation and he's mostly yelling the whole time. And it's just, I honestly, I thought it was a great show. I thought it was really overlooked. And Ethan Hawke yelling, my name is John Brown is one of my favorite things I've seen on TV in the past five years. Um, and then my other TV show is Outlander. You took mine. But I'll let you do it. I'll let you do it. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I did Outlander. <laughs> Go for it. World War II nurse carried back in time, 1743. I mean, it's the, got the time travel aspect, and that's about it. <laughs> and it's got Jamie. <laughs> and it's got Jamie. <laughs> Hot as hell. First season of Outlander wedding episode. Damn. Damn, 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 damn. <laughs> there you go. Two very different options. <laughs> <laughs> okay, book. This one I'm very excited about. So in the in the throughline episode about Octavia Butler, they uh, you hear a lot from this uh, this author named Nettie Okorafor, and so Nettie actually came to my school in twenty eighteen, yeah, twenty eighteen, and she spoke. And this was at a time when she was writing for Marvel, so she was writing all the new Black Panther comics. But she wrote this book called "Who's Who Fears Death," and this book freaking wrecked me so this book takes place in a post-apocalyptic africa uh it's kind of like a future version of sudan and so Nettie actually talks about in this uh, in this uh podcast episode through line that she took a lot of like afrofuturism inspiration and she was a writer before she even knew who Octavia Butler was. And so she was like going into sci-fi and fantasy and was like, I am not seeing any of my representation. And she actually went into this program that Octavia Butler also was a part of and uh, taught, uh, taught some classes in. And she went into the same program as her and they were, went to this bookstore and she was like, they went, you know, we all went straight to the fantasy sci-fi section and all of a sudden I'm walking and I see a book and it has a black woman on the front. And I couldn't believe it. She was like, I didn't know that they existed. And I looked at the author and it was Octavia Butler and she had never heard of her before. And so she calls up the, the program and was like, hey, can I meet her? <laughs> like, can I have her phone number? And this was when she was still alive. And so they gave her Octavia's phone number. And so Nettie and Octavia formed this like very cool bond. And she became a sort of mentor to her in this Afrofuturism, you know, setting and this uh, whole genre and like, how do we, how do we make this better? And so they became very close. <laughs> so anyways, 
Who Fears Death is a post-apocalyptic Africa. Um, and it talks about this genocide of this... So they have these two groups. They have the dark-skinned and then they have light-skinned. And so it's this genocide of the light-skinned Nuru. And so it's from the point of view of this daughter of um, one of the dark-skinned... It was a dark-skinned woman who was raped by a light-skinned man. And so when these children are born and they're born light-skinned, then they are automatically ostracized. But the character in her book uh, soon discovers that her biological father was this sorcerer. And so she has these powers. And so it kind of follows her and her discover and her discovery of these powers um, in this future Sudan, very mystical setting. And it's a fabulous book. It is a hard read. It is not for the faint of heart. It was a rough read. So, but it is an, I don't know. It's one of those books that has stuck with me. And I, I like almost cried when I started talking to her because I was like, because I got my book signed by her and I was like, I am such a fan. Holy shit. You have made a huge impact on my life. And she was like the nicest human ever. So Nettie Okorafor, Who Fears Death, fabulous book. Nettie for the win. I... My book, which I am working my way through slowly, it's like a thousand pages, uh, is The Love Songs of W.E.B. Du Bois, which is a, it's essentially like a book about one uh, African-American family as they, it basically traces like that family from, I believe, before the Civil War all the way up to present day. It came out a couple of years ago. Yeah, 2021. And it's stunningly written. My best friend recommended it to me. Shout out Milo. And uh, I, I just, I've, I've been picking it up in between what we read. And it's just, it's beautiful. So that's that. That's my recommendation. I love that. That's a great pairing. Let's get into movies. Mine is a little bit of a stretch, but I feel like it was a recent movie that I really enjoyed. And I feel like... Oh, uh-oh. Did we pick the same movie, maybe? Uh, Black Klansman was mine. Oh, no, 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 no. Okay, good, 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 good. But I do love that movie. It is so good. It is so good. This takes place of a, of a black man who calls into the KKK to learn more information. He is a um, police officer. Yes, Ronald, uh, investigator, gives, gives this Klansman his real name <laughs> and discovers, oh, I probably can't go. I'm a black man. I can't go to a KKK meeting. So he gets his uh, Jewish co-worker to go for him. Adam Driver. Adam Driver. <laughs> and so they are, it's just like, you know, them trying to infiltrate and successfully infiltrate the KKK. It's a fabulous story. It's just really good. It's just also John David Washington and Adam Driver are so good. And it's such a weirdly like buddy comedy movie, despite the fact that it tackles racism in America. It's so good. My movie is also a very recent movie. My movie is Triangle of Sadness. If you have not seen Triangle of Sadness, it was my favorite movie last year. And I'm so pissed off that it didn't win any Oscars or any awards, especially Dolly De Leon. But basically, I thought of it because essentially the movie is about a luxury cruise ship and follows the crew and the guests in the first half of the movie. And then in the second half of the movie, there is a shipwreck. And so the guests and the crew are now a survival group. And that means that... 
the people who in charge are no longer just the people with money. And I thought of it specifically because Dolly DeLeon, who plays the cleaning woman on the ship who ends up becoming the sort of leader of the survival party, is very Dana-esque in that she's sort of using her cunning and her intelligence and just her like leadership ability. And so it doesn't matter that she's out of her place because society is crumbled and it's just it's it's a masterful movie I don't know what else to say if you can get past the disgusting 10 minutes in which everybody's puking while the ship is crashing please watch it it's incredible and it shows you that society is just an absurd creation that we all decided to be a part of but actually there is no rule except survival yeah, it's such a funny movie because it's like it's all over the place. Like I haven't seen it, but it's the reviews are all over the place. Like, yeah, some people really hated it. I have st- I still really want to see it. Well, that's it. <laughs> that's Kindred. That's all she wrote. But um, what what a freaking book! Can't wait for the next one. Thanks again, Abby. Yep. Thanks again, Abby. Until then, cheers! Cheers! Clink! Well, that's the show. Thanks so much for listening. If you liked it, please go give it five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. If you want more book-related content, you can find us on Instagram and TikTok at Podcast. Again, that's at R-W-R-E-A-D-S-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at Podcast on Instagram and TikTok. Until next week, keep your books open and your drink glasses full. Thanks all. <laughs>